3: across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. So, now we know everything is sorted. We've been given our orders Christmas isn't cancelled after all. It's just been turned into a massively complicated affair that involves bubbles, households, mince pies, and individual plates that are definitely not for sharing. The collective brains of Boris Johnson, Nicola Sturgeon, Mark Drakeford, and Arlene Foster have managed to cobble together a set of Christmas rules that are almost impossible to understand and entirely arbitrary, considering all the other rules that they've come up with over the past eight months. I'll bring you a full explanation of the 12 rules of Covid Christmas, and I'll be challenging you to work out what you can and cannot do, who you can and cannot do it with, how long you can or cannot do it for, and where you can and cannot go. First up this morning, uh, we're talking to Diana Davidson, Tory MP for Bishop Auckland, who has demanded that the proposed MP's pay rise should be scrapped. Could she be the first sensible politician we've had on the show this week? I'll be congratulating her for that, but I'll also be asking her what she's doing for Christmas. 0344 499 1000. Of course, we've got Rishi Sunak's financial review coming up later on today, right after Prime Minister's questions. We'll be bringing you that live. Also coming up, we'll be speaking to Majesty magazine's Ingrid Seward on the breaking news from Meghan Markle, who has revealed that she had a miscarriage in July. And we'll be talking to Neil Oliver for his latest take on what's going on in the wacky world of lockdowns, tears and travel restrictions. As ever, we want to hear from you as well. What are you making of these new rules, which we won't actually really know much about until tomorrow's news about the tears that we're all going to be in? I'm going to be in floods of tears, I think, by the end of the day. 03444991000. After midday, is Prime Minister's questions in the company of Talk Radio's political correspondent Charlotte Ivers, Boris Johnson uh, and Keir Starmer's weekly jousts. Uh, which right now seems about as irrelevant as I can think of anything. But then Rishi Sunak will take to the floor and we'll find out from him whether or not the Chancellor is now going to start punishing us and charging us for all of his previous largesse over the course of this particular pandemic. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Welcome to the middle of the week. Wednesday, of course, is always an important day here in the Independent Republic, not least because we get a glimpse of Boris Johnson, although we've seen quite a bit of him this week already. Let's hope uh, that when he uh, zooms in from his uh, hideaway in Downing Street, that he doesn't actually lose his connection like he did the other day. Um, And let's really try and get the guys who have done all the lighting for Rishi Sunak's pictures to start taking over the technological aspects of Boris Johnson's um, life, because clearly they're a lot better at it than the people in Downing Street are. Also this morning, I'd have to say big credits to The Sun, uh, who have managed to depict Boris Johnson as Noddy Holder on the front page. And I'll tell you what, he looks exactly like him. Here it is, mini Christmas. Great headline as well. We'll be talking about that coming up later on. Let's first of all, though, say a very uh, warm welcome and a very good morning uh, to Deanna Davison, MP, Member of Parliament for Bishop Auckland, one of the new uh, breed of MPs from the north of England from a seat uh, which she won back in December. Deanna, very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning, Mike. Thank you for having me on. Not at all. Nice to see you. Um, And also nice to see an MP who's actually got some decent ideas about what the country would like rather than what they would like. I've heard a few MPs already uh, on radio stations this morning being a bit mealy mouthed about this MP's pay rise, which has been proposed by uh, IPSA, you know, the governing body. Uh, But you've written a letter and you've co-authored it uh, to say that you don't want it.
0: Well, that's right. I mean, I think what we need to recognise is that this has been a really difficult year for people right across the country, a difficult year for a lot of our constituents. Um, and so I think now is just completely not the right time for, an MP, uh, for MPs to get a pay rise. Um, and, you know, I completely appreciate that IPSA was set up as an independent body to do, uh, to do what they do free from political interference. But surely anyone sensible would recognise that giving politicians a pay rise uh, at the moment would be just absolutely
3: ludicrous. Well, it really would. Also, I mean, without wishing to sound unkind, you've only been in the job, uh, people like yourself, who were only just uh, been elected in December, less than a year. So, I mean, it's not bad business, is it, to suddenly be in a job less than a year and to be getting more or less a 5% pay rise straight away?
0: Well, precisely. This is, this is exactly the point. And I'm sure there are some colleagues who've been in the House a little bit longer who uh, perhaps take a slightly different view Um, But again, so many of our constituents have had a really difficult year. We need to play our part in helping to shoulder that burden. And that means freezing our pay.
3: Do you think it's fair as well to freeze um, public sector pay?
0: Well, at the moment, obviously, we're not quite sure what the Chancellor is going to announce later on today. So I don't want to get into too much speculation there, Mike. But, you know, what we need to recognise is that it's been a really difficult year. The government has put in place a huge raft of measures to help protect jobs, help protect livelihoods but obviously we are going to have to pay for that. So we do need to explore a whole raft of options for how we're going to do so.
3: I mean, we speak to an awful lot of small businesses on this show and an awful lot of individuals as well who work in the private sector. Many of them uh, are having terrible trouble making ends meet. Many of them have spent their entire savings trying to get through um, this COVID uh, pandemic because they haven't been able to open up their businesses and they haven't been able to make any money. I, I mean, I personally think um, that certainly the union bosses who are demanding these uh, pay freezes not be pr- brought in um, are, are completely out of touch with reality.
0: Well, I'm a, I'm a Tory, Mike, so you would expect my view on unions, uh, you'd expect what that might be. Um, and the thing I find really interesting about a lot of these union leaders is the amount that they personally are paid as well. Mm. You know, many of them are paid more than the prime minister. Um, it's absolutely uh, outrageous, frankly, for mm. them to be uh, making such crazy demands over pay. Um, but, you know, what we need to reflect is that our, our you know, essential workers in the public sector have been doing amazing work. But those in the private sector, you know, aren't necessarily going to be getting those pay rises. So we just need to make sure that there is some fairness right across
3: the board. Yeah, I think so. And also a lot of people in the private sector, particularly people working in supermarkets, people who have been delivering things to houses, to houses where people can't go out. I mean, they've all been doing splendid and sterling work as well, but they're not really getting much thanks for it.
0: Well, completely. They've really been keeping our country going. Um, My granddad is a truck driver. He's been doing a, a whole load of deliveries of kind of getting food and other bits and bobs to people when they need it. Um, you know, these are the people as well who've been keeping our uh, our economy going, but keeping society going as well, keeping us well stocked up. And you're exactly right. It's really important that we recognise them, even if they're not in the public sector.
3: Now, I've got a list of all the other MPs that have signed this letter. Is it a sort of cross party mm-hmm. scenario?
0: Um, at the moment, this is a letter from Conservative MPs, um, but I'm sure there are others across the board who uh, who kind of welcome this and share the same view.
3: Yeah, but it would be nice if you heard from them, wouldn't it?
0: <laughs> it certainly would be. Um, I will admit, on on this one, I did largely approach my Conservative colleagues, yeah. um, and haven't heard a great deal from uh, from the opposition on it. But I'm sure they'll uh, I'm sure they'll be revealing their views if they haven't already.
3: Yeah. And what is the actual process? Because, I mean, in in times gone by, uh, many MPs have kind of hidden behind IPSA. They've gone, oh, well, you know, it's not really down to us. It's down to uh, the, the body uh, which makes these decisions. But there was, I think, a precedent for this under Gordon Brown's prime ministership when uh, uh, there were problems with the economy. And the MPs in Parliament at that time said that they didn't want it and then they stopped it from coming. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, um, what, what IPSA do, obviously, as you've rightly said there, Mike, they are an independent body set up kind of in the wake of the expenses scandal to really take MPs' pay and expenses away from kind of um, MPs' control, which I think was a really important thing. Um, what uh, IPSA are doing at the moment is consulting on pay rise I think it's 4.1% pay rise, about three and a half grand a year uh, for each of the MPs, which would come in from April. That consultation's been live for a little while now. Um, I personally fed into it, and I know that um, some of my constituents did and a lot of other MPs did. Um, but now, really, it's a case of waiting and seeing what decision they come to. And that's why I think it's really important for us to kind of step up. And just just make them aware of the kind of level of public feeling on this and the level of feeling amongst we MPs that uh, you know many of us really don't think this is the right approach.
3: Yeah. And I noticed that, that uh, on your social media, there was a, um, a note from one of your fellow MPs about the abuse that he received talking of the public mood, um, because the public mood can turn quite nasty and has done frequently uh, over recent times. How difficult is that uh, for you?
0: Um. I mean I'm not going to lie and say that it isn't difficult sometimes you know the amount of um, abuse that you can receive on a day-to-day basis can be quite staggering um, and has definitely come as a bit of a surprise to me in my first year in Parliament but I think also we kind of need to recognise that this has been such an unusual difficult year and um, people are going through some really hard times and it's kind of only natural that people will be quite quick to kick back particularly on social media where it's really easy sometimes too easy to kind of retort within a few seconds and then kind of go oops maybe I shouldn't have said that Mm. um so you know I certainly don't condone any abuse but I think we need to recognize that we really do need to be in tune with public opinion as well
3: yeah doesn't help when Angela Rayner calls people Tory scum I suppose does it
0: absolutely not and I do think that was completely disgraceful to do so at all disgraceful but to do it in the House of Commons chamber where you know one of the key rules is that we keep it very polite and keep any kind of uh, personal and kind of human disagreements out of the chamber I think it was completely wrong and you're completely right there, Mike, does not help political discourse whatsoever. No,
3: it really doesn't. And what about political discourse within the Tory party? Because at the moment, uh, what we do know is that there are a group of um, of MPs who are very keen to see lockdown restrictions kind of lifted to an extent. Uh, Graham Brady, uh, amongst those people from the, the COVID recovery group, who wants to see the Prime Minister doing something slightly different. Um, other people saying that when they lift the, uh, the lockdown on December the 2nd, how are we going to do that exactly? Is London going to get punished just because of the north of england uh sort of revenge feeling that uh, that downing street might bring in where are you on that
0: well i think it's important to recognize frankly that every single one of us in the conservative party in parliament wants to see this you know coronavirus restrictions lifted as soon as we possibly can i think it's important to make clear that we're all united in that there's just disagreements in the means in which we get there um my view really is that you know th- this is a impossible situation to try and govern Um, you know there are so many different conflicting views but you know as an MP it's about being able to look yourself in the mirror uh, at the end of the day knowing that you've done what you feel is right by your constituents and by the country that's why I did vote for um for this sort of second national lockdown because looking at the the kind of public health data for me I wouldn't have been able to look myself in the mirror knowing that I hadn't voted for something that could have saved constituents lives but obviously looking forward it's really important that we consider not just the public health aspects but also the economic and the social aspects as well and um, one of my key concerns is mental health and we're already seeing mental health referrals climbing Um, and uh, that's something that i'm really concerned about moving forward and why frankly i really really welcome the great news about the vaccine and vaccine development and how that may be starting to be rolled out in in just a few short weeks uh, but also about mass testing as well which will hopefully help us to control the virus even better than we are doing now um, and, and hopefully to help get more venues reopened and start getting things a bit more back to normal.
3: Well I think that's imperative really because the problem for me with all of this health data is that lots of people are now beginning to agree with what I've been saying for months which is basically that the, 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 the government has kind of cherry picked an awful lot of this health data. David Spiegelhalter was in uh, talking to MPs yesterday from Cambridge University, he's a statistician and he's actually said um, that they've basically tried to scare the general public by cherry picking certain types of data and that i'm afraid is what has led them to make these policy decisions and i'm not comfortable with them continuing to do that because i don't think many people in this country actually believe them
0: well i haven't actually heard, um, read what um Mr. was it
3: spiegelhalter yeah, yeah. great now i'll be
0: curious I'll, I'll be curious to look at to look at what you're saying because i'm always keen to see what you know some of our key statisticians and, and scientists are saying But I think the key point has to be that, you know, the government is being led by um, the sort of chief scientific advisor and the, you know, the core team who've really been trying to get us through this public health crisis. Um, And it has been difficult. And I don't think any country has dealt with it in a perfect way whatsoever. Um, There's certainly going to be lessons learned. But the fact of the matter is everyone in government is committed to, you know, doing it as right as they can by the country and getting us through this as quickly as possible. Well, that's
3: true. But there's an awful lot of people as well in the hospitality business who are saying to me that if this uh, lockdown lifts on the 2nd of December, but they leave an awful lot of pubs into tier two and sometimes even tier three, um, they're all going to go out of business. And I mean, then it won't, won't matter what the financial review says, because there will be literally millions and millions and millions of pounds missing um, from the tax burden on this country. And there'll be millions of people out of a job.
0: Well, I've been engaging with the hospitality sector quite a lot and I have been quite vocal on this sometimes, uh sometimes to the grimace of some of my colleagues in government, I think. Um I used to work in hospitality and it's a sector that is so important, kind of not just to me and to my family, but to the whole country you know the hospitality sector is where people have some of their strongest best memories we see you know uh you know children go into kind of you know going and having those family days in pubs we see um you know people having weddings even funeral wakes birthday celebrations so many of these take part in that hospitality sector so it's you know really close to so many people's hearts and we really do need to do everything that we can to protect it and um, i think there have been some incredible things that have come from government in terms of targeted support so things like the, the VAT reduction, which I know has been a godsend for many in the hospitality sector, um, but also making sure that where businesses in the hospitality sector have been forced to close through um, you know either the tier system or through the national restrictions, that they are getting that, that sort of rolling support and that grant support. That's been really important. Obviously the furlough scheme has been there and has been available throughout, um, but I don't doubt that it's been difficult. I was really pleased to see the 10 o'clock curfew um, extended actually. Um, my ultimate dream would be to see that lifted completely but certainly we know that going from 10 o'clock to 11 o'clock will make a great difference for a lot of, um, of well it will if they it will, will it,
3: well it will make a difference if they can open but it won't make any difference if they can't
0: yeah well as a, we're going to see tomorrow what is uh it's proposed that different areas are going to be put into and i'm certainly going to be following that really closely mike because what we've seen in my neck of the woods in the northeast was people really playing their part when we went into tier two. We managed to just stay out of tier three because we saw those cases start to level off and then start to fall. Um, You know, people have been making some great sacrifices locally and I'm certainly hoping that that's recognised in what tier I put into next.
3: So what are you doing for Christmas?
0: That's a big question. I'm I'm still deciding at the moment. Um, I will inevitably be going to visit family at some point. They're all up in Sheffield at the moment. Um, So really, I just want to see my mum uh, and see my godkids who are who are four and ten and uh, i haven't seen them for pretty much the whole pandemic so that's really? my my dream for christmas is to go and see them
3: are you pretty sure that you'll be able to do all that because looking at some of these rules i mean for example you can go to somebody's house if you're part of their bubble and one of the three other households in that house but you can't go out to the pub
0: mm-hmm. well it's, it's going to be down to looking at um at the guidance a little bit closer to the time seeing what tiers people are in um the problem with my family is it's a little bit fragmented so it's figuring out who I bubble with so that I still stick stick completely to those rules but I think that's um, the thing I mean
3: a lot of a lot of people's families are like that there's an awful lot of fragmentation and, and and it starts to get a bit tricky um if the limitations are what they are because a lot of people are asking me what happens about new year what happens after the 27th mm-hmm. where can you go can you go anywhere you know it's all a bit tricky
0: well it, it is tricky Mike and there have been so many questions right through this pandemic um And I think the the key point is, you know, we recognise that Christmas is such an important time for people right across our country. And the government's really being as sensible as possible to come up with a set of rules that are, are, you know, vaguely straightforward to follow, but that make sure that people can have as close to a normal Christmas as possible, but without really increasing the risk of this virus spreading. Because, you know, whilst uh, things are getting better, those cases are kind of coming down that virus is still out there and it's still out there in, in kind of huge numbers and we really do need to recognise that um, over Christmas. But I think that kind of softening for that five day period is really important and I think a lot of people are going to really cherish that family time that they haven't potentially haven't been able to have right throughout this year.
3: No, quite. All right, Deanna, thank you very much indeed for talking to us. Deanna Davidson the Conservative MP for Bishop Auckland. Uh, don't forget, we are live streaming on YouTube, we are live streaming on Facebook and we are live streaming on Twitter. Uh, she says, uh, we'll have to wait and see. Because only till tomorrow will we find out precisely what the tearing situation is and what you can and cannot do. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Right, so here's your easy to use, cut out and keep guide to what you can do at Christmas. If you happen to come from a divorced family, bad luck. Because what that means is you're going to have to spend time with an awful lot of different people, some of whom you might not like at all. But if you are divorced, you're able to go to lots of different places to celebrate Christmas. But you're only allowed to go to those places between the 23rd of December and the 27th of December. So uh, if the last sort of rung on the ladder, as it were, isn't available till the 28th, you might not be able to see them. There's no trains on the 25th of December, of course. So if you want to travel on Christmas Day, uh, you'll either have to get a bike uh, or you'll have to get a car maybe. Uh, if you have a support bubble which is involving more than one or two people from different households, that's okay too. Uh, you can bring them along to another support bubble where you can sit down and share some mince pies but don't share the plate because if you share the plate you could pass the virus to one another so what you should really do is have your own single use only plastic bag in which you put a mince pie and in which only you can touch it. That would be the way to go. If, it, if I were you, I'm just saying this is what I would do, okay? What I would also suggest to you uh, is that if you are meeting up with anybody from another household, whatever you do, do not go to the pub. If in fact the pub is open, which it might not be because it might not be in tier one, more than likely it might be in tier two but you can only go there if you want something substantial to eat. The other thing you can't do uh, of course is if you live in a house with more than one other person or possibly three other people, you could all go to different support bubbles and different households. different. So the idea that this is not going to somehow spread a disease which is spread by people going to different houses is a nonsense, right? So if in fact you're going to spread the disease, uh, you might as well spread it to as many households as possible of course into this plan uh, because you'll be allowed to bubble up uh, go into a house next door Uh, you go into the house next door to that if you wish as long as you keep carrying that single use only plastic bag uh, full of a mince pie now in in fairness travel uh, is going to be very limited because there won't be any trains as i said on uh, boxing day and indeed probably not on christmas day either so the one that you want to get on the 27th will probably be cancelled you won't be able to get it anyway so i think we can all have a very very substantial christmas with a very substantial meal with as many people as possible as long as you're with within those guidelines, which I think you'll find uh, are very easily explainable to all and sundry. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Neil Oliver joins us later on in the show. Also, it will be Prime Minister's questions. It will also be Rishi Sunak's turn as Chancellor to get up uh, and tell us what he's going to be doing uh, with the country's finances. Uh, Right now, though, let's talk about dodgy data. Jamie Jenkins is here, former Head of Health Analysis at the Office for National Statistics, uh, because quite frankly... I've been banging on about this for many, many weeks now that the government has been, shall we say, um, economical with the truth or the actuality, as they used to call it, uh, in the sense that they are not quite giving us the full picture of the data that they are giving out. Uh, Yesterday, when we made planks of the week, uh, the Department of Health very much appeared because, of course, they had tweeted out that the Daily Mail's um, graphics and the Daily Mail's information, which they published last weekend, was, in fact, misleading. They've since uh, got rid of that and deleted that tweet. But Professor Sir David Spiegelhalter, who's a statistician at Cambridge University, was at uh, a SAGE scientific um, advisory group meeting. Um, He's rebuked politicians... what he has said is a numbers theatre. He's basically accused the government of cherry picking statistics to fit a particular response to the crisis. And I've said this before to Jamie. I'll be interested to find out what he makes of it. Well, Jamie, very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. I don't think there can be any doubt now that this is what the government have been doing. And while they're not necessarily telling lies to the public, they are rather um, economical with the truth, are they not?
1: Well, the one thing with economic models or forecasts of kind of deaths is when they're forecasts, they're not actual facts themselves, because they're obviously things that may occur in the future. And you need to put a lot of models behind all of that. So they can be kind of misleading. And and Sir David Spiegelhalter, actually, he is a former president of the the Royal Statistical Society in, in the UK as well. So you're not going to get a much more kind of prominent statistician and for him to be quite critical yesterday was quite a kind of a big step. I think yeah. um, if, if you look at that, it was kind of that spooky Halloween presentation that we've talked about before, Mike, about from uh, Valence and Witty, where yeah. there's a lot of data presented. And and I think what uh, Sir David was talking about was the, the 4,000 deaths a day scenario mm. that may occur in England, which incidentally would have been around Christmas time. So let's kind of sense check that number itself. So um, 4,000 deaths a day. Now, that would be 28,000 deaths in a week. Now, they, they kind of predicting it would go up, it'd reach a peak and then start going down. So let's just say that, that you'd get over 20,000 deaths in a week around Christmas time. Now, what we do know is that 84% of all the deaths that have occurred for COVID so far have been over 70 years old. So to get over 20,000 deaths, it's going to have to be majority of people over the age of 70 to get anywhere near yeah. that kind of Projection that they've got. Yeah. Now, if we we look at the start of this year, so let's just take the first week of January, because there will be deaths registered in the first week of January, which would have taken place around Christmas last year. Now, there were ten thousand deaths this year um, in that first week of January for people aged over seventy. Remember now, that's all causes. That's cancer. That's strokes. That's heart attacks. Dementia. Just people who may have just been dying of old age, etc. So, so the worst case scenario. Was predicting more than double the amount of deaths from this pandemic than we saw at the kind of for all deaths at the start of the year, and and I just can't see how any model can get anywhere near that. And the first thing I always try and talk to the teams if I'm leading them or I'm doing numbers myself is just tend to check the numbers first before you start talking about
3: them. Well that's right and I mean I admit that, I think everybody admits that that 4,000 figure of deaths a day is wildly inaccurate because we're now I think back down to 300 uh, per day at the moment which as you say would be more like 2,000 so it's 10% of what they were suggesting it might be. But also um, Doctor Sir David Spiegelhalter was talking yesterday about one of the graphs that went out on Monday uh, from Boris Johnson who was talking about what's going to happen on December the 2nd and whether we go into more tiers. He described one of the graphs is one of the worst
1: graphs he's ever seen well the the, the presentations that have been coming out quite regularly from um, from downing street uh, i think most of the charts have been cut shocking we've seen misleading charts presented in, in the welsh government briefings as well and, and i think some of the times when the data is being presented they, they're even popping up saying this is a complicated chart now mm. if we actually make some sense of the second wave, I think, Mike. That's probably an important thing. So on the 8th of April this year, that was the peak of the first wave. We right. saw 1,280 deaths, according to ONS. But uh, you remember now, that first wave caught us all by surprise. We didn't know the virus was here, late February, early March. Mm. Lots of people would have been mixing around. And so we also know that there was a number of discharges from hospital into care homes. And around that period of time, uh, about a third of the deaths were in care homes. So we know now that the the care homes are much better protected than they were during the first wave. Older people know the risk of them, so they're taking more precautions. We've got a number of tiered restrictions that we had in place in England, and we got all the social distancing in in place. So so the peak was 1,280 at the first wave. With all these measures that are in place now, I can't see how you would get anywhere way above that um, and any figures above that, I think Sir David is probably right that there's some potential scaremongering going on.
3: Well, there certainly is. And also, you know, we're hearing from various different um, points uh, in science that basically there's big outbreaks in Kent and Sussex, for example, um, which have been put down to a lack of social distancing, uh, willful disregard of the rules uh, from when uh, places were in tier one. But then at the same time, you've got the government saying, don't worry, for five days at Christmas, you can more or less do whatever you like.
1: Well, that's another consistent problem, I think, since the pandemic, is the inconsistent messaging. You've obviously got that issue with you can do what you want, kind of meeting up over Christmas. And then the the whole de- devolution I've been quite critical of as well in that you've got different rules in Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland and England. Mm. Whereas I think when COVID goes over the border, it doesn't, I don't think it accepts that there's a different kind of uh, country that it's in. So, mm. We've also got the kind of the chief medical officers in each of the countries possibly disagreeing with what the science is saying because they're coming up with with different kind of policies in the different countries. And I think a key part of all of this is just messaging. So if you lose the public and they start thinking that what you're saying is either inaccurate, false or just inconsistent, then people start kind of losing trust completely. And that's where we do know that there's a virus out there. We do know that. So, say, social distancing will help. But when people start seeing all of this different information coming out and potentially being wrong, people start thinking, is there other agendas, rightly or wrongly? And, and that's the important thing. We've got to get public mm. trust to combat, combat the virus, Mike.
3: And also, I noticed for the first time the other day on the news that they're starting to sort of slightly more qualify the death rates. You know, they are actually starting to put a little notification at the bottom of the number, which says, you know, people who have died in the last 28 days... Uh, having had a sorry who people have died today having had a covid positive Mm -hmm. test in the last 28 days but who we know many of whom will not have died from covid
1: well yeah so i think the important thing with the death state let me just explain what we're looking at here is that so they're reporting at the moment uh, the number of people who are dying who have tested positive so inevitably that will include people who have possibly died of other causes just happen to test positive because there are many people who have been admitted to hospital now are being tested. So they'll be included in the figures. I think the most important number to focus on are kind of the excess death series. let me just go again, explain what those are. So excess deaths, are how many deaths over the norm you would get for the time of year. And if you see them significantly above, which we did in the first wave, you know, then that there's something going on in society, COVID, for example, at the moment, that's causing more deaths than they should and I think what the excess death series is clearly showing is this mass regional variation across the country. So we know that the north, the northwest, Yorkshire, the northeast, et cetera, they've had quite a lot of hospital admissions over the last couple of months. And excess deaths, there are about a third higher than what they should be for the time of year. So there's clearly kind of a pandemic issue in the northwest. But you take the southeast of England at the moment, we are seeing COVID deaths uh, and they, you know, they are going up slightly. But the overall number of deaths in the southeast of England and no higher than what you'd expect for the time of year. So, so I think that's clear evidence that there are definitely some people being put in the statistics with COVID as a part of the factor yeah. that possibly would have died anyway. And that's why we've got to focus on the excess deaths, focus on the regionality and the variation, because I think we're seeing hospital admissions come down in the north, and they're slightly going up in London at the moment, which is a bit concerning, but they're coming down most of the country. And when hospital admissions come down, there's the time lag you'd expect deaths to come down. And maybe that tiered approach that we had in England, and we've been having different approaches in Wales as well, was working before the national lockdown came Mm -hmm. in. And we do know uh, national lockdown, obviously means that everybody from the south of Cornwall to the northeast of England are all affected by closures of businesses etc.
3: Well that's the trouble isn't it because this information that we're discussing now will be the information that Boris Johnson is currently looking at and using to decide which tiers uh, for which areas uh, in which parts of the country. So you know it's really important I think that, 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 that we keep the pressure on the Prime Minister to ensure that he does it right, to ensure that he doesn't get scared by the uh, the sage advisors that he doesn't get you know worst case scenario into basically putting everybody into tier three
1: well i think if the the government should really be challenging back as well so one of my criticisms and i think when i spoke to you recently mike was that if the presentations that are being issued to the public during these briefings is the exact same information that's being given to government you can kind of see sometimes why they're making some of the policy decisions they are so is the presentation and the data being presented to say boris johnson matt hancock and, and similarly in wales is that balanced and fair and are they getting kind of a, a real life picture of what's going on i hope that they are mm. and they're making decisions based off the, all of the data but one of the things i've noticed and i do a lot of tweets on the data myself and there's lots of other people out there there's, there's lots of people now that you can't criticize the government for the amount of data being issued there's there's some bits that i would criticize for example in, in Wales, 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 an example there, we know there's been a number of hospital outbreaks in Wales. Mm. And that's seen a rise in deaths. And we've seen excess deaths in Wales, which have luckily come down a little bit in the recent week. But how many of the excess deaths are being caused by people catching the virus in hospital? So that's people going into hospital, testing negative, and then over a week later, they're testing positive and then sadly dying. Mm. And how many are actually people who are catching COVID in the community and then going into hospital and dying? Because... If it's more the former and people are catching you in the hospital, you've got a totally different policy response than if it's people catching you in the community Mm. and going in hospital. That data has not been made available, but we have seen a lot of data issued and there's a lot of scrutinising going on of the government. And and that can only be a good thing. And it's highlighted in exactly what we're talking today, Mike, that I think some of the data being presented it's kind of misleading and maybe scaremongering because we've actually got similar data where we can kind of fact check
3: what's actually being said. Well, exactly right. And as long as that keeps going on, then that's great. But if the prime minister is not listening, then it's not so great. Jamie, thanks very much indeed uh, for talking to us. Jamie Jenkins, former head of health analysis at the office for national statistics. We've got lots more to do. Uh, we've got more of your calls to take as well. Oh, three, four, 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 nine, nine, one thousand. Does it make any sense to you what this government is suggesting that you can do over Christmas? There's a bizarre report coming out at the moment as well. Uh, some data that's been collected by a polling company saying that some people are now saying they wish that the government would tell them that they can't see their families over Christmas they don't want to
1: not do it but they'd rather be banned from doing it what's going on?
3: Mid morning with Mike Graham. Talk radio. Now, Scotland, as ever, has been very much in the eye of the storm this week. Let's talk right now to Neil Oliver, TV presenter, archaeologist, of course, and a good friend of the show. Neil, a very good morning to you.
2: Hi, Mike. Nice to see you again.
3: Nice to see you too. Um, how are you figuring out your Christmas bubble scenario? Because they've, they've sort of managed to, by hook or by crook, make Christmas sound like a visit to the dentist.
2: Yes, um, as, <laughs> as 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 has been the case now for for weeks, I am just bumbling through it. <laughs> uh, I'm sure, like like millions of people, I'm probably uh, breaking the law uh, every day. Right, one way or another, whatever or whatever just, whatever, it, whatever it
3: has to be this <laughs> week, you know. Um,
2: uh, I suppose yeah, I, my reaction is I think it was an, an inevitability. I'm sure the governments have gone in for a kind of collective responsibility. Thing with this one, mm. where they must surely have felt that the weight of public opinion, the length and breadth of the country, uh, was going to be against them if there had been an attempt to, you know, keep families and whatever apart right. at Christmas, and that they've gone all in with this attempt to pay lip service to letting people be together mm. as though they were getting out on parole for, for five days. Right. I think there was probably an inevitability about that. Um, and I'll be, you know, I'll be seeing, I'll be seeing family over Christmas without a shadow of a doubt. Yeah. Uh, what upsets me, though, really, is just the way. I and mean, if you take, if you take COVID out of the equation, it's just this: the way in which so many millions of people have just internalised so quickly this idea that uh, you have to be told what you can do and what you cannot do. Mm. There's a fundamental principle at stake about liberty. Uh, and, and freedom. Uh, in this instance, we've surrendered, or millions of people have have surrendered liberty in, in the name of this virus. Uh, but having done it once, it becomes that bit more likely and that bit easier that the same people would do the same again for other reasons. Yes. And it, just this idea that's out there now, that we are not free people, that we don't make our own decisions, uh, and we have to wait almost every day To be told what we can and cannot do and who with and for how long uh, is is for me a a profoundly worrying situation that I think will have consequences forever after.
3: No, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I cringe when I hear people um, on radio stations and on television talking about it and then kind of parrot fashion saying, well, I don't know if we'll be allowed to do that. You know, because it is, as you say, profoundly disturbing. And we've been speaking to a lot of small business owners this week and last week who have been put under pressure from various local police constabularies to shut down. There's a woman uh, somewhere in the north of England, I think, who's been fined £37,000 because she refuses to close her hairdressing salon. Um, We've got our friend in in Droitwich who's got a card shop, a stationer's shop, uh, who have been served with, with notice from the police. You know, And you just think to yourself, you know, if this goes on, uh, now it will go on forever. It will go on into the new year. It will go on uh, whenever the government decides to somehow hand out yet another piece of um, advice or guidance or law, um, and they really seem to be enjoying it rather too much.
2: There's no end in sight. I mean, it, the, there's the the vaccines are now uh, available or just about to be available, mm. but it, it doesn't seem that having been vaccinated will mean anything. Really?
3: No.
2: All all the suggestions are that you can that you could still be infected again, and that it wouldn't. It's not as though if you if we could somehow magically uh, vaccinate seven billion people in the same moment tomorrow, mm. that it would that it would all be over. It's been, in many ways the vaccination just sounds like another complication uh, that's to be interpreted one way today and another way tomorrow, mm. uh, and that its supposed efficacy is neither here nor there. Uh, it, it's just uh, it's just going to be another exercise in something that you have been seen to do that, uh, another box that you've ticked another way in which you 've seen you've been seen to have behaved yes uh, but it, but it's not going to bring none of it is going to bring none of those none of those moves are going to bring the the pandemic to an end that will have to be a decision made by people the people yeah uh, and we're not, going, we're not going to be let out of it because it, it's apparent that governments are getting too much out of this. They've seen the potential of being, rather than people being free uh, and that, you, that uh, you're free to do whatever you want unless there's a specific law prohibiting it, which mm. was always the case in the past, the thing has been flipped through 180 degrees where you're not allowed to do anything mm. unless the government gives you permission. Yes. And that's a fundamental change.
3: Well, it really is, and it's and it's been astonishing, and I think you and I would agree on this how how that has come about. I mean, which culminates in, and and I know that uh, um, you know you probably not rather I mentioned Ian Blackford's name, but it culminates in people like Ian Blackford more or less uh, putting out a tweet in which he, he goads somebody for travelling. To Scotland from England, even when the person in, uh, involved had not actually travelled specifically from from England to Scotland at all, um, and he's had to now withdraw it. But I mean, it leads to that kind of nastiness, doesn't it?
2: Well, that was that was a deplorable uh, action. If if there was if someone in Ian Blackford's position, uh, you know, a senior politician. Uh, had genuine concerns about the, you know, the safety of his uh, constituents, then it would have been easy enough for him to to have uh, inquiries made about who the person was, you know, where they had come from, where they lived, which would have quickly established that the, the person that he had targeted was living in mm-hmm. in Caithness and had, and had every right to about taking photographs. Uh, but instead, by going to uh, to social media to send out that tweet, that was just setting the dogs on someone. Yeah, that was that was purely to send those who would attack that person. It was just to, it was just to get them moving, mm. you know. And here was here was an English person to be uh, attacked, uh, and the, you know. And, and Ian Blackford has has previous on this. You know, he, he famously. Uh, retweeted that photograph of a road sign on the Scottish-English border that had been modified so that it had, you know, F off yeah. or closed. Right. And only it wasn't F off. It was The whole word was spelt out. Right. Uh, and then and, the, and the, Nicholas Sturgeon then, you know, rises to his defence and says that once again he's behaved with nothing but grace and dignity. Um, though, grace and dignity are not words that I would use to describe, you know, setting the dogs on no. someone. And and, uh, and retweeting, you know, an image that was that was purely designed, purely uh, designed to cause trouble and, and ill feeling. Yes, and even you know, the instant allegation that was made was that it was was anti-English, and, and there is, you know, there is w- within within the nationalist movement an anti-Englishness that's just undeniable. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's there's talk all the time about how it's civic nationalism in Scotland, as though the use of civic is is to give it a a, a progressive and uh, and and tolerant air. Right. But the, the, the anti Englishness, you know, now it's been they don't use that word anymore. So they talk about Tories and Westminster and the London parties, and all of those are code for England and yeah. and England. But yeah. but it's not it's not about that. It's it's about being the right sort of Person, a good person. I mean, I'm I'm born and bred here, but as far as the SNP and their supporters are concerned, I'm the wrong sort yes. of Scottish born and bred person because I don't support their agenda. And they'd be perfectly supportive of English people who who and they are supportive of English people who say that they're in favour of Scottish independence. Yeah. But if you're an English person who says that you don't agree with independence, then you're a bad yeah.
3: But it's worse than that, perfect. Neil, because it's almost not about independence. It's about, and I saw some of this and I knew it would come yesterday because we put uh, Ian Blackford in Plank of the Week and we put out a tweet uh, of me impersonating him. Um, and, of course, the usual flurry of abuse came my way uh, when I pointed out that all of my family are from Scotland, uh, that two of my children were born in Scotland, uh, that I've lived in many parts of Scotland over various times of the year, uh, that I've travelled more or less every year of my life to Scotland for one reason or another. Uh, I was accused of being a xenophobe against Scottish people, and I'm like, well, how can you be xenophobic against your own people? I don't think it's even the right word.
2: It's just I find it almost inexpressibly depressing, uh, and it's not just to do with nationalism and and the and the calls for an independence referendum in Scotland and all the rest of it are just are just an example of a much wider depressing picture, which is which is about hatred. Never in my life have I lived through a time, nor did I expect to live through a time where there was just so much application of hatred all the time. Mm. Now, we've, you know, now we've got to the point where in, in Scotland there's a hate crime bill uh, that's that's just freely talked about. Uh, and, I've, and it, uh, When it comes to, um, it, it was there about Brexit, you know, it was there about the, the last general election, it's there about people who do and don't wear masks, who do and don't, you know, want to abide by such and such a restriction. There's mm. so much, you know, naked, unalloyed h- hatred out there. And it's becoming right and acceptable to be seen to hate as long as you're hating the sort of people who deserve to be hated. Yes. And I, I find that, that that we've descended into that where it's no longer about debate and discussions, it's about people feeling free to hate. Mm on account of someone having an alternative you know point of view the, the, the use of like covidiots, idiots which yeah. is just a catch-all expression that's used again and again and again and applied to people just because they're asking questions and and of course, people want to ask questions about something that is affecting every aspect of our lives at the yeah. moment.
3: Yeah. But I, saw, life- I saw a great cartoon yesterday, which I retweeted. I can't remember who, uh, uh, well, from whence it came, but it was a couple of people walking towards a beach with a surfboard wearing swimming trunks with a child also wearing swimming trunks. And behind them, behind a sort of fence were these two people in hazmat suits pointing at them saying, look at those complete lunatics. And it kind of summed it all up for me.
2: Yes, everything, everything's coming down to the, the, the coarsest, you know, most tragically predictable terms. You know, it's all about, you know, if people don't agree with the orthodoxy and if they don't loudly support the orthodoxy, whatever it is, then they're stupid. They're idiots. They're racists. Mm. They're misogynists. They're Islamophobes. They're transphobes. And this, this way in which hate is just... Becoming part of the, the the daily stock and trade about how you keep people in line, you know, people aren't people aren't uh, in agreement. People are now just frightened to say what they think, or even to ask questions, because they're they're so afraid of simply being the the, the focus of hatred, or being dismissed as as idiots or or, or stupid people. Uh, and, and all you're, all you're doing to people, millions of people are just learning to break the law every day and keep their heads down. Millions of people are just learning to keep their opinions to themselves. Mm. You know, in, the, in the context of that hate crime bill that's, you know that's floating about, you know this idea that it would be uh, that if you were having a, a conversation, if someone was having a conversation around the dinner table in their home uh, and it, in, it involved say, someone saying something that could be interpreted by someone as hate speech that you would be prosecuted for that, for something that had happened in your own home. Mm. Now, implicit in that is that somehow or other, the authorities are going to get to hear about a private conversation. Now, how is that done? It can only be done either by an informant with who's part of that conversation then going to the authorities, or it's by some sort of application of technology. Yeah. So private conversations within the home are being listened to And and reported to the authorities. Now that all that—that's the application of fear. Mm. That's that's a that's a government that rather than address people's concerns, it just goes after making sure it's not possible to dissent, not possible to question the orthodoxy, and that's done by making people even afraid to speak in their own homes.
3: Yes. Well, this is what I thought yesterday when I heard Nicholas Sturgeon, because it's less true, I think, in England at the moment. You know, we may have our problems with Boris Johnson and people may be disappointed in how he's kind of administering the country. But when I heard Nicholas Sturgeon yesterday describing how Christmas, you know, could be a dangerous time and that if we didn't do the right thing, you know, people could lose their lives. And you're thinking, well, hang on a minute, you know, on the one hand, you've said that people can do this stuff at Christmas as if you can grant freedoms to people. And at the same time, you're warning them that they're so idiotic and stupid uh, that they might end up killing their relatives. Um,
2: it goes without saying, I'm just another member of the public who's just reading things. But isn't it basically the case that the excess death figures are where they would be in any typical year. yeah. You know, I mean, you know, six or 700,000 people die in a year. And we're, we're on track to have a, a, about the same number of people again. So that, so that as I understand it, in my, in my simple way, we aren't losing more people than we normally do at this time of year mm. or in any other year. And so what, what exactly, what exactly is it that we've done so wrong? you know, what, what is it that people are still being punished for yeah. in terms of these ongoing restrictions in the form of in the form of lockdown and it's it's just this uh, it's just this overwhelming perception that people have had to accept now that into an uncertain future for as long as somebody else sees fit our freedoms don't count mm that we have to wait every day to be told what we're allowed to do and who we're allowed to do it with. And somewhere in amongst all that has been completely lost. The fact that the, the population handled and spoken to differently could have had the, the personal agency to look after one another, you know, to look after the elderly, to look after the people that are at risk, while still being able to, to carefully and responsibly go about their own lives, maintain their businesses, maintain their livelihoods, keep their jobs. Mm. But instead, we've we've, we've suddenly, within a matter of months, it's not even been a year, but we've we've accepted this role as being so clueless about everything that we can't make a move out of our houses unless somebody else has told us it's all right.
3: Yeah, I know. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, when they ruled last week that you basically could not travel from England to Scotland, I wondered whether I was just imagining that. And I wondered how they could even try to um, police that but then worried, actually, that if they did start to police it and actually did put police on the border, it would appear that they have the power to do that. Are we free free people or not is my my basic
2: question that that keeps me awake at night. Mm. And were we ever, you know, until this happened, were we just uh, living under an illusion of liberty and freedom? Were we, in fact, always... As, it, as far as it matters captive creatures
3: yeah well I, I like at, to think at, that because at of the
2: at moment's notice we are just we are just dependent on being told what to do in every aspect of our lives possibly forever
3: mm. well I like to think that the election process means that you do have some power uh, to to remove and or change the government that you're not liking but unfortunately, in Scotland, that doesn't appear to be the case because, under the current rules and regulations of proportional representation, I don't think the SNP is ever going to be out of power, is it?
2: Well, it certainly, it certainly, absolutely uh, bestrides the Scottish political landscape without without a, without a shadow of a doubt. Mm. Uh, and the and the fact is, you know, you know, contrary to to the impression that is that is so carefully curated, you know, we have not had a good COVID. You know, we've, uh, Scotland is right up there um, amongst the worst COVIDs anywhere in Europe in terms of death tolls in the care homes, uh, you know, death tolls as they're being counted overall. You know, we have not had, we have had a bad COVID. Mm. Uh, and yet, you, you know, so many, so many sections of the, of the media down south uh, are content to, to go along with this idea that somehow it's been handled uh, much more professionally and much more capably up here. Uh, and there's just there's just no room up here for saying that no the same all of the same mistakes have been made here if indeed mistakes have been made the the picture is exactly the same up here and when you compare a country of about five and a half million people to other european countries of a similar a similar population you know we've got far higher death tolls here uh, than in in other similar sized countries but there's no um there's no mechanism anymore for uh, for criticizing and questioning the government because if anyone seeks to do that, then they are targeted by hatred and bile mm. that's just supposed to close you down. Because it would appear that out there, there's an attitude that instead of making anything better, you know, we've got all the problems up here that we discussed before, you know, the, the, you know the health, infrastructure, education, uh, you know, civil engineering projects, everything has been handled badly up here. And for a long time, everything is on the slide. But it's not challenged, and now all that appears to be happening is that the, the government up here, uh, you know, with the you know with with a lot of the media complicit in it. The government are just seeking to create an atmosphere where to question and to ask for something better. Is almost a crime. Yes. That has to be shouted down. Dissent is wrong.
3: But it's like and politics it's but it's like crime. politics as a cult, isn't it? I mean it really is quite cult like in the way that, you know, you have the great leader, you know, like North Korea had the dear leader and then followed by the great leader and followed by the, you know, um, the, the wonderful leader and all of that. And that's kind of the sense that you get now, that you cannot criticize anything or anybody, um, because that would be the devil itself's work.
2: Yeah. You know, as I I said earlier, I I am one of many
3: people who is just
2: characterised as the wrong sort of Scottish person. Mm. You know, I'm not just I'm not just someone who's got an alternative point of view that would like to see, uh, you know, another government, a different government. Uh, That is intolerable. And and increasingly, voicing an opinion like that uh, is being characterised as stirring up hatred. Yeah. Just not agreeing, just vocally not agreeing with what's happening, and questioning the orthodoxy is becoming characterised as stirring up hatred. Yeah. Just because you don't agree with the with with the dominant orthodoxy, you know that's the situation in which I find myself on a daily basis. And yet I know that there are millions of people around me who agree with me. Yeah. Because they make the point of quietly coming up to me and telling me that they agree with me. You know, and I do get massive amounts of you know, private support for yes. the, the stands that I've taken on various issues, but to do so in public is just to open the, the floodgates that, that lets the, the sewage in.
3: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, I'm hearing more and more of that um, from this part of the world as well, where people are, you know, for example, Very, very happy to agree with some of the things that I say on the radio privately, but can't actually come out and say it publicly, which is an extraordinary state of affairs, really. Neil, listen, we've run out of time, I'm afraid, but thank you very much indeed. As ever, we'll be talking to you plenty before uh, whatever the Christmas bubble brings, uh, I'm sure. Uh, Neil Oliver, archaeologist, TV presenter there, talking common sense as usual, uh, as he always does, uh, from his world headquarters up there in Scotland, which has become a very strange place uh, over the course of the last few years, I'd have to say. Talk Radio.